the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Where are we going, Johnny? Straight to the top, boys. Oh, yeah? Where's that? The toppermost of the poppermost. Welcome to Toppermost of the Poppermost. I'm Ed Shen from When They Was Fab. I'm Kit O'Toole from Talk More Talk. And I'm Martin Quibell from Pods Like Us. Merry Christmas. We are here in December of 1962, 60 years ago. This week, we're going to start off with Motown, Lummy Do was still in the charts. It was kind of reaching its peak at this point in time. The Beatles had a little bit of time to promote it in late November, early December. But at the end of December, they were back to Hamburg for two weeks. And that was when we got the Star Cub release. That was when they recorded that. Yes, indeed. You know, even though the sound isn't great on it, it gives us a really good window into what they were listening to at the time. And it does reflect what we are going to be talking about and what we have been talking about that was on the charts in 1962. It also shows how, as John Lennon would be quoted as saying, how hot they were as a live act at that time as well. going to start off with this week our feature for december of 1962 motown was coming into the scene one of the favorite facts that i got out of lewison was that the very first time a motown song not the version by the motown artist but a motown song was played on the bbc was in march of 62 when the beatles covered please mr postman Yes, indeed. And I'm really excited to be talking about Motown in this episode because these are kind of the early years of Motown. This isn't the absolute peak, so we're going to be seeing some early stuff from the Supremes. This is in the era where they were known as the no-hit Supremes, (laughs) believe it or not. Uh, The Supremes took five years before they got a hit, but we believe they were great. Right. In the show, they call them the no-hit Supremes, and it's a a running joke in the beginning. I I couldn't believe that. Yeah, and they, and we, but but, but we knew they were great, so we just stuck with them until they made it, you know, so that was, that was great. So when did money come out? Money was late 60, early 61. That was more like 59, 60, somewhere around there. I mean, that was like one of Motown's earliest hits, really early. So that's before 62. So we're not in that early Motown, but still pretty early. But the Miracles were certainly the first big hit group of Motown, and we're going to hear from them. Smokey, you really got a hold on me comes out, I think, in what, 62, 63. And all of a sudden, four young British guys do the song. What was your reaction to it? I first heard you really got a hold on me by the Beatles because they sent us an album to Motown because they had actually recorded several Motown songs on that same album. Please Mr. Postman, some other stuff, you know. And boy, of course, I was flabbergasted. I was flattered. I I love the fact that, see, when people record my songs, man, for me as a songwriter, that's a dream come true. You know how it is. I mean, when when somebody records one of your songs, because especially the Beatles, man, they were songwriters themselves. And, uh, you know, there are millions and millions of songs for people to choose from. It's choose one of mine. I love it. You know, Seth, they were the first white act of any stature that I ever saw in my life who came out and said, hey, man, we grew up listening to black music and we love it. And we got a lot of our feeling from black music. No white act had ever said that before. 
you know, come out in the public or in the press and said anything like that. Here come the Beatles and they say, hey, man, yeah. You know, we grew up listening to this black music. We love this. Motown. So, you know, what greater endorsement can you get? Mary Wells was the first lady of Motown at this point. Um, oh, she guy. was one of their big acts. Yeah, my guy. Uh, but others, we're going to see another song besides my guy on this chart. Well, he was just 17. You know what I mean. And the way he looked was way beyond compare. So how could I Marvin Gaye is just starting to break through after having had not very much success with jazz albums because he wanted to be kind of a jazz and pop singer. Wasn't really getting through there, but we're going to see his first big hit on the chart. We're going to have a bit of Motown now with your Marvin Gaye choice. Yeah, to me, this kind of uh, summons up the 60s. Uh, It's like it's a nice day outside today, you know. Yeah. It felt like the 60s felt like the weather was always good. Don't think it was, but it felt like it was. Uh, just Marvin, the yeah. whole thing, you know. I just love it. And then James Jameson was my big influence on bass. Oh, right. You know, he was like, if, if I have to pick a bass player ever, it's him. Really uh, interesting stuff. We'll be seeing the early days of success for many Motown artists. Before we go into the charts, are there any you want to talk in particular about? Sure. Uh, we could talk about, let's see. Uh, well, for um, Stubborn Kind of Fellow was on the charts. Number 46. This was week of December 8th, 1962. And this was the first hit for him. I guess I'm just a stubborn kind of Marvin Gaye was definitely one of the Beatles' favorites. Uh, they talked about it many times. So what we like to do now is do something we don't normally do, but this is especially for Detroit here tonight and for Motown. This is one of my favorites of Mr. Marvin Gaye. And as I mentioned, this is the earliest hit he had. This is after he really insisted he wanted to be like a jazz and pop singer. And after much persuasion from Barry Gordy, he finally said, I think I'd like you to try something more on the R&B side. This was it. Stubborn kind of fellow. Baby, please And it was co-written by Marvin Gaye. He played drums on it. And Martha Reeves and the Vandellas are singing backup on it. They're not listed as Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, but that's who they are. It's classic Marvin Gaye with that great raspy voice. And it's classic Motown, those great jazzy chord changes. But it's still a record that is accessible and it's just got that great Motown beat. Another one we can take a look at is, as I mentioned, Mary Wells. Beatles were huge fans of Mary Wells. Tamla Motown artists are our favorites. The uh, miracles, the, the impressions, the excitement. The exciters. Chuck Jackson. Marvin Gaye. Tam. Mary Wells. Wells. To name but 80. She was on the charts at this point with Two Lovers. The follow-up to another great song of hers called You Beat Me to the Punch, which is uh, not as well known as My Guy, but a great song. But uh, Two Lovers was written and produced by Smokey Robinson. He was really on fire at this point, so, you know, not only for himself, but as a songwriter, producer for other Motown singers. And the Beatles declared Mary Wells their favorite uh, singer and would later invite her on to England to tour with them and wanted to even you know, write some songs for her. It didn't happen, but uh, she would later repay the favor by recording a 
tribute album to them in 65 called Love Songs to the Beatles. But until the Supremes hit it big, Mary Wells was the first lady of Motown. Mary Wells performed two lovers. Well, I've got two lovers and I ain't ashamed. Two lovers and I love them both the same. I listen. The song was the third consecutive hit to be both written and produced by Smokey Robinson of the Miracles and recorded by Mary Wells, reaching number one on the Billboard R&B chart and number seven on the Billboard Pop chart. Not as memorable as my guy, but she was still pretty young, late teens maybe at this point, but had this sultry voice. A little bit like we talked with Helen Shapiro. And then you mentioned Smokey Robinson. You really got a hold on me. Was there, you know, rolling around at the bottom of the charts that first half of December 1962? Yes, indeed. And that was uh, rather important. (laughs) Of course, the Beatles would go on to record an incredible version of it. And it also shows the Beatles learned a lot from Smokey Robinson. We know that, of course, George was a huge fan of his. But I think they all learned a lot from Smokey as a songwriter. Smokey Robinson, he is one of the greatest songwriters in in popular music, one of the great American poets. Look, as far as I'm concerned, you've really got a hold on me. Boy, that and Tracks of My Tears, another example of, of his just sophisticated, incredible songwriting. These are some key Motown tracks that make their appearances. And then then we got the Shirelles, uh, Everybody Loves a Lover. Not one of their better-known songs, but it's a good song. It's a good song, and and they were kind of the prototype, in a way, for the Supremes and, and all. They were the pioneer of the girl groups. They sound like they should be on Motown. They really weren't. They were on the Scepter label, I believe. But yeah, this is not one of their most well-known, a, a decent song. But as we know, they would have a big impact on the Beatles as well. And then the Supremes with Let Me Go the Right Way. At this point in 62, known as the no-hit Supremes, <laughs> believe it or not. Don't lead me on let me go the right way. My heart's baby, is for you. They just could not get a hit. This was their fourth single. It was written by Barry Gordy. What's interesting about this song, and I encourage you all to look it up, it is sung by Diana Ross. Now, some people in the comments on the YouTube video claim that it's Florence Ballard singing lead. It is not. It is Diana Ross singing lead. But she has this, it's a more raw vocal from her. You can tell that when they've cut Baby Love, you know, uh, short time later, that she changed her vocal approach to make it a bit more pop-friendly. Here, this is more of like her natural range, and it's not as breathy. And so it's very interesting to hear this. But it's here, it's at number 91. Didn't get much further than that. So still in the early years, wouldn't wouldn't hit it big with Baby Love for another couple of years, I believe. So, yep, early years of the Supremes. And we got to give Diana Ross credit. She was there the same night that Paul closed out Glastonbury. Diana Ross was also on the bill. That's right. Exactly. And really, you absolutely cannot underestimate the impact the Supremes had on the charts in, in the 60s. I mean, they had 13 number one hits, something like that. I mean, they were a force to be reckoned well, with. And they, too, did a... Beatles cover album. That's right. And toured England and and were a big success. So uh, this is one of the earliest appearances by one of the biggest groups of the 60s. Then not a Motown act. We got the Drifters with Up on the Roof. 
Another Carol King song. And one of the best. Those lyrics are just beautiful. You know, as I was researching for this show today, I kind of wondered if John and Paul had this in mind when they wrote There's a Place. The British hit or semi-hit was from Kenny Lynch, yep. who was on the Helen Shapiro tour. So yep. they must have heard it every night. Well, you just have to wish to make it so. I left to go up on the roof. Paul McCartney's friend, isn't he, Kenny Lynch? Tell us more, Martin. Well, I know that Kenny Lynch is one of the people that's on the Band on the Run cover, if anybody's interested, the Wings album. Yes, indeed. But wasn't Paul saying once that he used to go back in the day and uh, him and Kenny Lynch used to go to boxing matches together to go and watch their friend John Yeah, Conte? they did. You know, let's let's get a bunch of people in a spotlight, yeah. like that, that classic, they've got out of jail yeah. thing, you know. And then it was like, well, okay, we could get actors or we could just get mates. I mean, no, we could get, like, famous people. That'd be good. Because then we liked the game that people would guess... You look at the cover, you've got to guess who's going to do it now. It's and brilliant. People do it now, yeah. It's almost like your Magnificent Seven. Well, Magnificent Six, at least. On the cover with Paul, Linda and Denny were chat show hosts Michael Parkinson, horror movie star Christopher Lee, the multi-talented Clement Freud, MP, singer and entertainer Kenny Lynch, Hollywood star James Colburn and the Liverpool boxer John Conte. Marshalling this disparate bunch of pseudo-prisoners was celebrity and fashion photographer Clive Arrowsmith. And by the way, I like the Kenny Lynch version. Really, he had a lovely voice. Very smooth, and I thought he did a nice cover. A little bit close to the Drifters version, but as we were talking about, frequently the British would just copy completely reproduce the backing and just stick their singer over it james taylor he would make it something completely different yeah absolutely and no uh, but i thought i like that version too uh but because it's just such a it's it's a great song i mean it's it's classic goffin king songwriting and uh, in fact jerry goffin would later on cite the, the lyrics for up on the roof as his all-time favorite of the lyrics he'd ever written hard to argue Before we carry on, Kenny Lynch was actually a flyweight boxer before he was a uh, uh, singer and and, and an actor-comedian. Oh, okay. Oh. All right, anything else on Motown for now? We're going to start with the American charts since we're already there. Anything else you want to say before we start in on the actual songs? Well, there's a Do You Love Me by The Contours, and I wanted to point that out because, first of all, just a great song. That was number 26 on the charts at the time, and that features the Mighty Funk Brothers on the backing track, which, as we all know, Funk Brothers, one of the tightest bands ever, Motown's house band, and James Jamerson was the incredible bassist, uh, so influential to many musicians, including one Paul McCartney. And Paul has said many, many times that James Jamerson was uh, one of his main uh, models in playing bass with his melodic style. You can't hear his bass quite as clearly the way the song was mixed, but it's still there. And I just love this song. And it just shows the tightness that the Funk Brothers had. Just wanted to point that out. Yeah, it goes to show, I mean, the Beatles always complained about the bass sound they got in the early 60s. It wasn't just them, and it wasn't just the UK. It was everywhere. It was a limitation of the recording technology. Exactly, and granted, we're used to bigger bass sound today. That's part of it, too. But yeah, and, and, and it was limitations, as you said. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because yeah, I did want to briefly say that the Beatles loved the Motown sound, and wanted to replicate it as much as they could that drum sound and, and i think on uh, with the beatles you can really hear them trying to replicate that but couldn't quite match it exactly i'm very honored to have been asked to MC the introduction to this james jameson memorial tape monitored for a couple of reasons mainly because his style of bass playing for motown was one of my major influences when i was learning electric bass 
And I know that uh, a lot of the people who are playing and demonstrating his technique on this tape have also been influenced by him. He's one of the greats, so long may the name of James Jameson live on, and I hope this project goes on to greater heights. certainly deserves to. Cheers. Thanks a lot. I'm with the Motley. A lot of Motown here, and as we know, Motown had a tremendous impact, not just, just on music on, in general, but on the Beatles. So on with December of 1962. So the first week in December, the number one hit was Big Girls Don't Cry by The Four Seasons. Fairly tenuous connection. Frankie Valli has no relationship to Paul McCartney, but there's the VJ label. <laughs> yes, there is. The album. Well, the two LPs. The two album set. The Beatles' first two LP set although they're only one of the records in, in the set. The Beatles versus the Four Seasons. We talked about the Beatles and Frank Ifield way back in the first show. This was another one of those knockoff albums that VJ put out to try and sell extra copies of Introducing the Beatles. Yeah, I just love that was versus Four Seasons. <laughs> like, like this was this epic battle. <laughs> it's like King Kong versus Godzilla. Yeah. Well, and if they hadn't done that, we never would have gotten the famous, infamous bootleg, The Beatles versus Don Ho. <laughs> well, then that, that alone, that alone was, yep. was worth that album. The scorecard, the whole idea is like, somebody must have just been sitting there. I got an idea. <laughs> oh, that's These are the only acts we have on the label that are selling. And we got to get as much Beatle product, and we got to burn through all of these copies of Introducing before we are not allowed to sell them anymore. Oh, I just love it. Yeah, it's like, I got it. We'll set up this album to look like an epic battle between these two bands. Oh, love it. Why was the Never the Beatles versus Hank Williams? <laughs> <laughs> And speaking of VJ rarities, we have the Beatles versus the Four Seasons, a double LP set. I've seen one of these in the last 30 years. Uh, extremely rare. You got to play and you could rate uh, Beatles versus Four Seasons down the line. Uh, often this is filled in when we do see it. Uh, no one scored this one, so that's good for us and you for value-wise. Uh, the vinyl itself is VG+. Plus. It is unfortunately missing the poster, which comes with it. Uh, very common for that to be gone, but still a real rarity. Uh, nice to have in stock. Let's see, the rest of the first week, we talked about a lot of it. Only Love Can Break a Heart by Gene Pitney. Yeah, now Gene Pitney, of course, for a while, I mean, he was kind of seen as, you know, an Elvis sort of wannabe. But I shouldn't just say that because he also wrote uh, a number of, of great songs for other acts. You know, Hello, Mary Lou for uh, Ricky Nelson. He's a rebel for the Crystals. So he's actually a great songwriter as well. But darling, remember like this song in particular i've just never liked it i'm no. sorry <laughs> paul did a little bit of comparing for uh gene pitney yes because of a peter and gordon thing yeah gene pitney had 16 top 40 hits in the u.s and four in the top 10 and and then in the uk he did even better 22 top 40 singles and 11 in the top 10 town without pity was another one of his big hits yeah, and I don't care for a town without pity. Yeah, it, I mean the vocal just so affected. Exactly, I think that's part of it for me. And and yeah, only love can break a heart. It it just, I don't know. It just doesn't go anywhere for me. So I'm I'm sorry, Gene Pitney fans that are probably hating us right now. I'm oh, really well. sorry. I mean, it just isn't my style. But he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He wrote some great songs for other people. Number twenty two. Nothing can change this love from Sam Cooke. Cry, see me coming 
better known songs not one of his best but it does have an interesting kind of a country blues feel to it and of course another case of who did sam cook not influence yeah um, but he certainly did influence the beatles and they were fans of his gone way too soon you know you hear songs like this and even though it's not one of his best that voice is is just phenomenal number 26 do you love me which we previously mentioned by the contours number 46 stubborn kind of fell by marvin gay now that's an early marvin gay song yeah and that as we talked about yeah his first hit Okay, it's the second week of December, Two Lovers by Mary Wells, which we already spoke about. Mm-hmm. Everybody Loves a Lover by The Shrells. Uh, two Lovers, the lyrics to that is like, how did she get away with singing that? Oh, oh, the Mary Wells song? The Mary yeah. Wells song. I mean, you know, it, it's almost a feminist anthem. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, and, and written by a man. <laughs> so it gets even more complicated. I mean, it is interesting that it, it, it is pretty progressive for its time. It was a, definitely a hit for her. Number 55, Tell Them by the Exciters. That is on there because they've toured with the Beatles. They were one of the opening acts. This is an interesting thing. This was uh, during their first North American tour in August through September 1964. This was an African-American act. I think it was, I forget, like three women maybe and one man. And they became, during that tour, the first black act to perform at the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, Florida. And the stadium's management initially refused to allow them to perform. But when the Beatles said, then, fine, we won't perform there either, if you won't let them, then the group was allowed to go on. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that's almost more impressive than putting that in their rider. Mm-hmm, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, they stood up to the management, and uh, and obviously I think they thought, well, <laughs> we'll have a riot on our hands if we don't let them on. And it's a good song. You know, it's a fun pop number. It's, it's a memorable one. It sticks in your head. And it's not a transformative kind of song, but it's an enjoyable single. I know something about love. All right, number 58, Up on the Roof by the Drifters. At number 59, we've got another different number from the Beach Boys, Ten Little Indians, which is kind of a novelty number. It's not one of Brian Wilson's strongest. No, and definitely one that would not fly today. Ten Little Indians. First little Indian gave squaw pretty feathers. <laughs> <laughs> Putting it mildly there. okay uh, toward the lower end of the chart we got really got a hold on me by the miracles at number 87 some kind of fun by chris montez at number 88 not one of his best yeah i do like the castanets in it though and the kind of the hard drums it's definitely let's dance part two but i do like some of the latin flavor to it but other than that yeah as i said let's dance part two Yeah. 
at number 90. Strange I Know by the Marvelettes. I kind of like this track. It's not one of their best known for sure, but I like the unusual rhythm pattern, the chord changes, and, and particularly the call and response. And I'll definitely could hear how that type of track influenced the Beatles on some of their songs, like It Won't Be Long or something like that. So I, I encourage people to check this song out. Look it up. It's not one of their well-known ones, but I liked it. It's a little different. Number 91, Let Me Go the Right Way by the Supremes. And we got two more through the end of the year. Uh, The next week we have uh, Aretha Franklin with Trouble in Mind. This is fascinating because this is an example of Aretha's early, early years when she was really singing jazz and blues. This is before Respect. This is before Muscle Shoals. This is the early years. And she was still finding her way at this point. And this is a live recording, but I mean, she still sounds like, I mean, this is that voice. I mean, that voice, (laughs) you know, unmistakable. She still blows the roof off the place. But you can tell this still isn't quite her. The arrangement, the kind of song, you know, she's still finding her way. And this is an early example of that. So this isn't, you, when you compare this to Respect and, and other songs like that, it's just interesting to hear how she would change her vocal approach. Trouble in my, yes, it's true. And then the last week of the year for 1962, the 2,000-pound B, Part 2 by The Ventures. Now, what happened to Part (laughs) 1? Yeah, this is Part 2, folks. (laughs) Now, I thought this was a really cool track because of the fuzz pedal fact. The Ventures recorded 2,000-pound B around 1962 and used a fuzz unit that Red Roads built to achieve that tone. I mean, it just sounds light years ahead. This is like the precursor to paperback writer in that guitar. In in a lot of ways, I can see that, yeah. Then in 1965, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones recorded I Can't Get No Satisfaction using a Gibson Maestro fuzz tone stomp box. It's really a cool track. The Ventures, as I said, boy, were they, they were trendsetters. Martin, do you want to say anything to us about this batch of songs we just went through? Well, you've mentioned the Shirelles uh, joined this, and the Beatles would be known to do a really great cover version of their earlier it from the year before, Baby It's You. And that's one of my favorite covers, too. And we do have a representative here of them that uh, everybody loves Lover, uh, which is number 53. Of course, they would also uh, do Will You Love Me Tomorrow. And I think I mentioned earlier, they were one of the pioneer girl groups because Baby It's You was from 61, pre-Supremes, just incredible group. So, yeah, this is a definite connection, Beatles connection. And the whole sha-la-la-la-la thing. Yes. That would become a, not only would they l- love to sing that, that would become one of their in-jokes. <laughs> sha-la-la-la-la-la. Yeah, exactly. So. And, in fact, two of their songs would end up being covered on Please Please Me because their song uh, Boys was on there as well. Oh, that's right. That's right. They did the original version of Boys. You're absolutely right. Which we have to thank Ringo for bringing in. I mean, that came from Roy Storm. That was part of Ringo's star time. Yep, that's absolutely. right. All right, so that was the American charts for December of 1962. Once again, it's time for our commercial break. Now, I'd like to talk about a fantastic new Beatles-inspired novel called I Buried Paul. 
None of the characters are actual Beatles, but many portray them in tribute bands, some with names like the Brian Epstein Massacre or the Dr. Roberts, made up entirely of MDs. The book's protagonist is club musician Jimmy Kozlowski, the long-standing Paul McCartney of Long Island band Help. Jimmy's in a bit of a boots-and-suits rut. He's happy to perform the greatest rock and roll ever written, but is still chasing the dream of succeeding with his own original material. He also works a straight job, entertains at a nursing home, and yearns to connect with the daughter he's never met. Anyone who's ever been a musician or thought they wanted to be one will recognize some of themselves in this story. As George Harrison described it many years ago, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. I Buried Paul is a love letter to the power of music, a funny and moving exploration of the sacrifices people make in service to its magic. It's a great stocking stuffer for the holidays, and if it's a virtual stocking you're stuffing, check out the ebook special for $4.99. And look for Bruce on When They Was Fab from a couple months back. All right, on to the British charts for December of 1962. We're getting better at that, by the way. Yes, we are. Yes. <laughs> smooth, smooth as silk. Well, I don't know if I'd quite say that, but <laughs> we're, <laughs> oh, we're getting on. better at that. Come on. <laughs> okay, looking at the British charts. The first week of uh, December, it started out at number 18 with It Might As Well Rain Until September. Carol King, we've talked uh, a lot about Carol King in this show and in the last show, but you can never talk too much about Carol King and Goffin and King, particularly with regards to the Beatles. Is this one of her earlier hits as a solo artist as opposed to just as a, as a songwriter? Yes, it was. And in fact... I think the label did not want to release this as a single, and that's when Helen Shapiro would later cover it. But Carol King, eventually they did decide, you know, decide to release it as a single. But I don't know either it wasn't released at all in America, or if it was, it didn't do anything. But in Britain, it did extremely well. Mm. So UK, you you were on to way earlier than we were as a solo artist. And it was originally intended for Bobby V, but then she uh, recorded the demo version, uh, and that's what became the hit. This was meant to be the demo version, and so it's really a lovely song. It's very um, melancholy, you know, and that kind of fit Carol King's later work. And it's just a beautiful love song, saying that with her love her away from her even the weather looks dreary it's actually a jerry goffin lyric that's a little cheat we have in the play in the play carol comes out and does it as her own song that she's written music and lyrics but carol king would probably be the first one to tell you that that's a you know give credit to the jerry goffin lyric the music is so very carol and so very of the era and that kind of teen pop you know bubblegum in the best sense it's just got a vibrancy to it and it's alive and it's got that beat and it's bouncy and yet she has this great little lyric in there that also has that wonderful sort of teenage angst to it, you know, the longing and the dreaming that, you know, you're not here with me. I, you know, woe is me. I I'm, I won't be happy until September, that sort of thing. It might as well rain until September, you know. It always makes me think of it might as well be spring, the Rodgers and Hammerstein song. It's like got a sigh to it, but it's got that Carole King bouncy beat. Helen Shapiro's version is interesting, too, if you look that up. You know, it sounds very different with her voice. But Carol King's version, it's classic. This is very early Carol King solo work. And to take this away from the Beatles for just a minute, the beautiful musical, I love that show. I've seen that show three separate times. And oh, I, and I, I actually love saw that it on show. Broadway. It's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yep, they do this in the show. And yep, I agree. Great show. Okay, at number 20 that week was It Only Took a Minute by Joe Brown. Now, this was Joe Brown. It was not Joe Brown and his brothers. Joe would become a good friend of George's, and we talked a lot about it. But it would be right around this time when the infamous picture of George holding Joe Brown's guitar was taken. Maybe a little bit earlier. That was early 62. Any idea? Not sure. So, had Joe actually separated from the brothers then? I'm, I'm asking you. Yeah, because, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, we Americans are pretty ignorant, unfortunately, about Joe Brown, because, in fact, I didn't know about him until the concert for George. I guess I'd heard the name before. I shouldn't say that. I wasn't completely unaware, but really paid 
a lot more attention to him after that, you know, because he did such an incredible job performing there. And oh, and he did I'll See You in My Dreams. I was hanging on pretty well until toward the end, you know, when he did that. Then the tears started flowing. I mean, just really touching. And yeah, he and George were good friends. British listeners, I know you're saying, duh, we know this, but he was a huge, uh, <laughs> longtime figure on the British charts. And just a quick look behind the scenes. We're recording this on the anniversary of the day that George passed. And in many theaters, not just across the States, across the globe, Concert for George is playing this evening. That's right. And yeah, Joe Brown played a huge part in that concert, I think. I just wondered whether the situation with the brothers was a bit similar to Cliff Richard, who we've already mentioned as well, because you would find that towards the beginning it would be it would be classed as Cliff Richard and the Shadows, the instrumental group, the Shadows, and then as it carried on, he was still backed by the Shadows, but it was just classed as Cliff Richard, but they weren't classed as his backing band, even though they were playing. So I'm wondering if it's the same situation with Joe. Well, I, funny that you mentioned that. A couple weeks later, the third week of December, Cliff Richard would have a uh, hit on the charts at number five with the next time back with Bachelor Boy. Was that a double A side or how would that work, I wonder? Yeah, I guessed it was a double A side, but I'm, I'm not sure. And I saw a clip of that from that movie you mentioned uh, in the previous episode, Martin, that uh, Summer Holiday. The next time I definitely could see that it would be a hit, uh, particularly with the teen girls. You know, it's very swoony, very, very croony. They say that I'm a fool to weep, that I want to go on losing sleep the next time. That someone else will mend the heart you've broken. Well, the one that gets played the most in the UK out of those two is Bachelor Boy on the radio when it does get played on oldies sort of shows. And that is actually the Shadows backing him, even though it's actually classed as Cliff on his own. Oh, interesting. Well, and then separate from that, at number 24 that week was Dance On by the Shadows, no Cliff (laughs) Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. It's not my favorite Shadow song, but... You know, I don't know if it's as memorable as some of their others, but definitely you can hear. I mean, they've definitely pioneered the beat group kind of sound in England. You can hear how they influenced others, you know, the British invasion, no doubt about it. It's not Apache. No, it's not Apache. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that That's is what I was big thinking song. of. Yeah, it's not Apache. You are absolutely correct. And just to get another little tenuous link in there, the lead guitarist of The Shadows is Hank Marvin, who played on Paul McCartney's Rockestra theme. Oh, that's right. Well, and that's Paul McCartney dressed up as Hank Marvin in the coming up video. Yes, it is. Yes, that's right. So next up, we've got the Kenny Lynch version of Up on the Roof. We already talked a lot about that, but I do still find it interesting that you know here it was, even though it was pretty much just a straight copy version. Those copy versions tended to chart pretty well in England. I, England didn't have anything like they have in Canada, do they, where they were forced to play a certain percentage by English artists? Martin, do you know? There is a history of musicians where they were booked like like a session group, not quite as well known as like the Funk Brothers or whatever, but they'd been musicians who were specifically told, you've got to copy this almost exact as that was. And then it's almost like an exact carbon copy of, of the original version and they'll they'll get English musicians to play it. Well, I mean, that's what Jimmy Nickel kind of, that's how he came to George Martin's attention was he played on one of those Beatle copy records hmm. in, I guess that would have been 63, early 64. Yeah. And Elton John, for that matter, you know, he, yeah. he made yeah. he oh, made right. his bones off of doing these knockoff budget copy versions of tunes.
that's right. And in America, we had things like that too. Um, yeah, but not quite. I mean, we. Yeah, I mean, not as much, but it would be more the other way. It's a good song from this English artist, but nobody wants to listen to a British singer. <laughs> so you know, Frank Sinatra or somebody would. Oh, I can do better than that. Mm-hmm. But I do like Kenny Lynch's voice on this. I I think uh, he did have a nice R&B soul kind of uh, vocal, and I do like it. I mean, I know it's extremely close to the original, but I do enjoy his voice. I'm going to look up some more records by him. Moving on. A song which we really want to have a connection to, but we couldn't find much of one. Don't Hang Up by the Orlans is a well-remembered song. It was in a commercial. It was in several commercials. Didn't AT&T use it? I think so. And let me tell you, folks, we were convinced that there was a, a really big connection. <laughs> both, both, been... both Kit and I were. Yeah, I mean, we were con- while we were looking through these charts, it's like... There's got to be something between these two. Yep, and uh, yeah, Mar- Martin was was skeptical, and yeah, we were like, no, no, there's a connection. <laughs> and so we've been discussing this for I don't know a couple of weeks, and we, you know, there's a tenuous connection, but we, you know, we had it in our heads. But darn it, it's a good song, so we're going to discuss it anyway. And, well, we, and we did find we, we did find several bit. tenuous connections. Yes, uh, that's true. Well, first off, was probably the strongest connection. Cameo was part of the same group that EMI could sell British records to if Capital didn't want to distribute them, which was how you know VJ and Swan were to get Beatle albums. Apparently, Cameo went and took an option on the Beatles, but then they let it lapse, and they never actually issued any Beatle records. Right. And Cameo Parkway was uh, out of Philadelphia, was later purchased by Alan Klein. <laughs> and Alan Klein screwed a bunch of people. <laughs> Much like no. his, his want to do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I did find a photo from like 63 or so of Ringo holding a bunch of records, 45 and all, and there was an Orlans record. So there you go. <laughs> it all links together. There you go. So there are your links. But and it's also just a great song. I I just think it's a you know one of the more memorable singles uh, from this period. And then there's the most tenuous connection, but it's the one that I think I love the most. Cameo Parkway was the parent company of Wincoat Records. Now I'm sure you're sitting out there going, Wincoat Records. I know I've heard that name. Yeah, there's a reason you've heard that name. You remember all of those. Cheap and Dirty, Ugly, Nasty, 1964 Beatle albums by The Bugs or the unnamed band, which was four mop tops on the cover, or the Liverpool Lads or whatever. The label which put out most of those albums, Wincoat Records. Wincoat Records owned by Cameo Parkway. And there's my favorite, which I passed on to Kit along the way. One of their knockoff albums was the Wincoat Squirrels Sing the Beatles. <laughs> Not just a Beatle knockoff album, it's a knockoff album of the Chipmunks singing the Beatles. <laughs> oh, I've got to go on eBay now and look for that. Yeah. That's a must-have in anybody's collection. Alvin and the Chipmunks had been a, I guess, reasonably popular novelty act up to that point. Oh. How can we knock them off? And and there was a Chipmunk Sing the Beatles, an honest-to-goodness licensed album, which isn't terrible. All right, Chipmunks, got your hair on straight. Sing it out, boys, this is going to be great. A one, a two, a one, two. Close your eyes. That's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> and, and to prove to anybody that we are talking about December, Alvin and the Chipmunks are actually on the charts with a Christmas song. Oh, this year? Oh, that year. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, it, it, I consider that a ringing endorsement. It's not terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's better than the 
four or five or six times we bought back various non-Dave Seville versions of Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> so there we go. We made all the connections. There Good we night, go. Everybody. We, made, we made all the connections we possibly can. But uh, I guess we should mention the couple things about Christmas 62. Not so much Christmas 62, but Christmas singles are a much bigger thing in the UK than they are here. Yes. Anyone who's ever seen Love Actually, that's the whole thing about what's going to be the number one song on the British charts at Christmas time. Yeah, that isn't really a thing here. I don't know why. No, but then again, in the charts at this point, you'd have some of the big Christmas hits around the time, wouldn't you? Because you'd have like you'd have Brenda Lee with "Rocking Around the Christmas Tree," Bing's yeah. come back into the charts again. Like I said, you've got Dave with the Chipmunks, and um, ooh, so many paperwork turning. <laughs> well, I mean, as we go through the years, a lot of times it would be Beatles songs at the top of the charts at Christmas time. Uh, there's, of course, the one year when. Mike McGear and the scaffold would be at the top of the charts at Christmas time. Thank you very much. Oh yeah. That's yes. Right. Yeah. Which apparently uh, the queen mother used to sing to the queen, by the way. Oh, you're kidding. No, oh, they used to sing that to her as, as a bit of a joke. Oh, how funny. Quite, quite nice. Yeah. And we know little Heather liked it because <laughs> she sang it and get back. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, so that's December of 62. We'll be back soon with January 63, with the year the calendar is flipped, and that is the month that Please Please Me enters the charts, although that won't be our feature. We're going to hold off featuring Please Please Me until February when it actually really starts to pick up steam on the charts. Sounds good. We'll see you then. Bye, everybody. Bye. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is, is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.